You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh I was, normally I start by giving a whole bunch of qualifications and prefaces. Adam's already done most of that for me. So, you know, what do we mean when we talk about being single? Well, I'm not just, I know most people in this room who are currently single will have never been married like me. Um, And a bunch of what I will certainly be talking about is particularly reflective of us. But, um, yeah, being single is much more than just having never been married. There's all sorts of different, um, well, you know, you can be widowed, you can be divorced, but even within those kind of main categories of never married, widowed and divorced, there's quite different experiences, quite different circumstances and complexities that go along with that. Um, even uh, I I think that my research and my ministry, um, I run a ministry called Single Minded, where I'm mainly an online resourcing ministry, so you can check us out. We've got a conference coming up later this year. I actually think a bunch of what we um, produce and help people think through is relevant to a group of people who aren't actually single. There's lots of um, particularly women in churches who are married, but married to non-Christian men, and their experience of single, uh, sorry, of Christian life and Christian community is almost functionally as a single person because they don't have a husband who's doing this part of their life with them. So, you know, there's there's much broader application. singleness than we realise. So that's one thing to say. I'm not just talking to those of us who have never been married. I'm also not just talking to those of us who are single. As Adam has said, this is something we need to think through together as a body of Christ. Um, The other thing I want to say is, uh, as we talk about, um, I left out Christian, but it should be up there. We are talking about Christian singleness and Christian cultural perspectives in particular. As we do that this morning and particularly as I talk with us about this please don't hear me saying this is your church's cultural perspective I'm talking broadly Christian here okay there'll be some things that you may recognize within your community here there'll be some things that you won't Um, so don't hear me sort of saying I'm diagnosing you guys that's not what's going on here and the other thing I think it's important to say and again Adam um, alluded to this is Um, As much as we have our own Christian cultural perspectives, there are other cultural elements that actually impact on this. And I'm aware that I'm speaking to a congregation that is broadly from a different cultural background than me as well. Your experiences in singleness in that are going to be somewhat different to mine. And there'll be things that I don't understand about that um, that you do. Uh, And, you know, maybe we can talk about some of that at question time and maybe you can help me to understand much more too. Um, The last qualification I want to say is we're going to have to move fairly quickly. Um, We are not going... I could talk to you for the next three days about this. Um, I wrote 100,000 words about it, let me tell you. I can keep going. Um, But we don't. I've got half an hour, now about 25 minutes. So we're going to be quite brief. I'm going to move quite quickly. I do want to, if we have time, just to get you to have some quick discussions with each other. And we're going to start off with one of those. But I'm only going to give you about 60 seconds, 90 seconds if I'm generous. So when I sort of call us back, if you can come back, that would be quite good. But I think that's important because I don't want to just talk at you. I want you guys to be engaging with each other and with me as we do this, okay? Uh, And what we're really going to be doing in this session is a bit of a diagnosis. You know, you go to a doctor, you say, I think I've got a problem. The the, The doctor then diagnoses, asks a bunch of questions, tries to work out, hang on, well, what are we dealing with here? Um, And that's what we're going to do in this session. 
we're going to hold a bit of a mirror up to ourselves as Christians, as evangelical Bible-believing Christians in 21st century Australia and go, hang on, what are we looking at? What do we understand is going on here? What, what is this diagnosis before we actually move on to kind of the treatment, um, which Adam will help us think a bit through? So first question is going to come up on the slide. I've got a bunch of slides, a bunch of quotes, so I'm going to keep saying to Isaac, can we go to the next slide, please? Um, 60 seconds, turn to a person next to you. What do you think is the problem with singleness? Well, that is, what does today's Christian church, not necessarily yours, but just Christians generally, why, in what ways do we see singleness as a bad thing, a problematic thing? Have a quick chat and I'll call you back. Okay, start wrapping those up. I know that wasn't long. Um, the first year of my PhD, uh, I, I spent almost a full year uh, reading every book on Christian singleness I could find, listening to every talk, every podcast, every sermon, any, reading any articles, basically anything I could find on Christian singleness, I spent about a year reading it. Um, I kind of lost the will to live at, the, at that point. But what I did that for was to kind of understand the landscape, to have a proper understanding of, you know, not just what do I think about this, but actually have I understood rightly what we think about this. And so what I want to run through with you now is kind of the, the broad patterns that I grouped things into in pulling all of these resources together, okay? About five or six of them maybe. I think they're on, they should be on your outline if you've got them there. Um, the first thing is singleness is something we see as by and large deficient, now, let me explain what I mean to you by that by asking you a question. This is rhetorical. Don't answer it out loud. When was the last time you referred to a married friend as being unsingle? My guess is you've never done that. I've never done that. We don't do that. We don't talk about married people being unsingle, do we? We never define the married person by the fact that they're not single. How often have you called a single friend, oh, that's Danny, she's single, she's unmarried? We do that. It's normal. It's, it's just part of our language. We very usually, typically, define the single person by the fact that they aren't married. And that's why we get books like this one on the slide coming up, titled, Not Yet Married. The pursuit of joy in singleness and dating, not yet married. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? It's just words. And in one sense, I get that. But there is actually a big deal underlying this. Because the big deal is that we define singleness by what it is not. We define being single as being not married. We define a single person by who they are not. They are not yet a husband or a wife. And Sam Albury, who um, is going to be speaking at the Single-Minded Conference this year, he puts it beautifully on this, in this quote. He says, singleness is all about negation. It's all about not having certain things. We think about it almost entirely in negative terms. To be single is to be not something else. It's to be un-something else. Singleness in just the language that we use is a deficit or a deficient identity. It's not about who or what you are, it's about who or what you're not. 
You're not a husband. You're not a wife. You're not married. So from the very outset, the language that we Christians use because it's the language that our world uses is defining singleness as a state of lacking. But there's more to say. You see, the single identity isn't only deficient, but it's abnormal. Let me give you a handful of quotes. They'll come up on the screen. To most Western Christians, it appears self-evident that marriage is the normal state. The Bible elevates marriage, it embraces marriage, and marriage is to be honoured and to be preferred. To remain unmarried is to act against our very nature. Now, these are just a tiny selection, um, but they're not from obscure books or obscure speakers. Um, Mark Driscoll is in the middle of that. I realise that. He was now very much disgraced, particularly if you've listened to the podcast, but he was formative for a whole generation of Christians on a whole bunch of issues, but particularly singleness and marriage. Absolutely formative. That book at the bottom from Debbie Macon, it is the worst book I have read. Actually, just period, <laughs> period, but particularly on singleness. And it has been recommended, I won't name names, but it has been recommended by some of the biggest Christian thinkers and leaders as a must-read book. It's, it's, don't, please don't buy it. I, I mean that seriously, please don't buy it just to uh, come and talk to me and I'll send you some quotes and that'll satisfy your curiosity. I've got one or two more coming up. Anyway, but what I'm saying is this is not, I haven't just kind of selected the worst of the worst. This is actually very representative of what is out there. A predominant theme in evangelical Christian thinking about singleness is that it is abnormal. It's aberrant. Marriage is what we were made for. Marriage is what is to be pursued by everyone. Marriage is to be preferred. Marriage is normal. And so singleness is not those things. But it gets worse because for some, singleness isn't simply abnormal. It's deviant. Now, I want to show you just a short video clip. Um, this was from a 2016 conference by a preacher you, you may not be familiar with, um, particularly at your age. His name is John MacArthur. Um, he uh, is a very, very well-known, prominent U.S. evangelical speaker, preacher, pastor. He had this to say at a very prominent conference in 2016. Let me tell you, he says... The most devastating attack on marriage today is coming from singleness. Singleness is an assault on marriage. For some people, like John MacArthur, Christian singleness isn't simply abnormal, it's not simply aberrant, it's dangerous, it's deviant, it's threatening. Okay, I know you're looking at me a bit stunned here, but this is a reality. You may, I, I feel confident that this is not the case in your church, but this actually is broadly underlying a lot of how we Christians think about singleness more broadly. All right, I'm coming back to you for another 90 second discussion. I might, try, I might even give you two minutes for this because you have to do a little bit of reading. Um, you'll have to have a look on your outline. Sorry, I thought I had that on the screen. There's a few excerpts on there from one article. I want you just to have a read of them. Have a quick chat. Just pick one. Don't all pick the first one. Pick one. Have a look. Read and discuss with each other. 
what do they suggest about the character or the behaviour or the godliness of single Christians? What are they actually saying is kind of latent within Christian singleness? Two minutes this time. Hopefully you've got it, you can look on at something. Keep those things just mulling over in your mind as we go through this next section because what we're going to talk about now is the way that singleness and single Christians are seem to be basically immature. All right, now, the world around us sees the establishment of a romantic and a sexual romantic relationship as a kind of levelling up to adulthood, a levelling up to maturity. So think about basically every young adult movie or book that you can. Even the dystopian ones where the world is literally about to end needs to have some sort of romantic storyline that sort of traces the young protagonist's journey to kind of becoming the person who's going to literally save the world. Part of a necessary part of saving the world is actually having some sort of romantic epiphany at the same time, okay? Uh, I, I use... Oh, no, I'll, I'll come back to this example in a little bit. Um, sadly, Christian culture, I think, bears far too much of a resemblance to the world on this count, okay? So... If we go back up now to the slide, um, there is a long quote up here. I'm going to read this to you. This is from Albert Moeller, who um, is a very big, important evangelical teacher over in the States. Here's what he had to say. He said, I pointed to what sociologists now describe as extended adolescence, a period of life that now is extended well into the 20s and even early 30s by many young adults, often young men, guys, you're the problem, who have trouble making the transition to adulthood. I urged these young Christians to seize the biblical concept of marriage and all of its glory, to understand God has set this covenant before them as expectation and to channel their energies towards getting married, staying married and showing God's glory in those marriages. I shared with those who attended the conference my concern that this delay, the deliberate putting off of marriage even among some who intend someday to be married, was the sin I think, besets this generation. Did you pick it up? Marriage is the way out of adolescence into adulthood. If you want to grow up, then you need to channel your energies towards getting married. And if you're not doing that, you are committing sin. But the immaturity of singleness is seen to be more about than just becoming a real adult man or woman. It's also about becoming a real Christian man or woman. You see, we too often see marriage as a necessary mark of spiritual maturity. The, the arena, the arena in which God promises to sanctify us. And so in my favourite quote of irony ever, we get this one. If you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married. Marriage is the preferred route to becoming more like him. I'm glad you're laughing at the irony of that. And here's from my favourite author, Debbie Macon, that book I told you not to get. Singles miss out on this means that God has established to know him more deeply and intimately. The single identity is an immature identity. It consigns you, we are told, to extended, indefinite adolescence, to not becoming a real adult. 
It's argued that if you're single, you're missing out on the primary way that God is going to make you more like Jesus. And so if you're single, you're bound to remain more spiritually immature than your married Christian friends. But it keeps going. I mentioned a book earlier, Not Yet Married. Uh, This book received very heavy promotion in the States about four or five years ago now when it first came out. Um, It was written by the same author who wrote those quotes that I just asked you to read. Um, Essentially, the book, those quotes are from an article which is kind of a very condensed version of the book. Now, I should say, there's some helpful stuff in the book. Um, You know, I'm not saying it's not like that one I told you not to go and buy. There is some helpful stuff in this book. Um, But you have to look closely to actually kind of delve into what's underlying some of the other things that are in the book. If you look closely at those excerpts or if you read the article or the book in full, what you would have spotted is that the author says things like, up on the screen, the single Christian life, oh, oh, there we go, that's why we're out of order, keep going, there we go, caters to and cultivates selfishness. Singleness itself, being single, caters to and cultivates selfishness, is characterised by preoccupation and self-pity, breeds an inherent sense of entitlement, enables an an apathy towards holiness, fosters a lack of commitment and irresponsibility and promotes a lack of self-control. So often, we think of single Christians as those who are uniquely and inevitably sin-prone. That is, single Christians are far more likely, we're told, to struggle with sin, particularly sins of selfishness, than the married Christian. The single Christian is by their very nature, their very circumstances are more selfish, more self-centred, more self-focused person than their married friends. I um, I wrote, um, I have a blog and I, I often kind of just put my thoughts into words and put it out there and I've got a very dear friend um, who I have a great deal of respect and trust and admiration for and he always engages with me. Um, he always sends me an email after he's read it and he you know, gives me a word of encouragement or a question. And this one time I'd written um, about this idea of, of selfishness and singleness and sanctification and maturity and things like that and this idea that we need to stop this kind of messaging. And he wrote back uh, an email to me and I really appreciated his email. And He said... I just wrote it down then so I could quote him properly. He said, marrying at 22, he's now in his 50s, marrying at 22 forced me to confront my selfishness in ways I'd not before I was married. My wife had to say to me so many times, you're acting like a single man, meaning I was being selfish. Now, I thought about that for a while and I ended up writing back to him and I said, I think we have to be very careful not to equate singleness automatically with selfishness because the problem was not that when he was a single man he was acting in a way that was consistent with him being single, not having someone else that he had vowed to promise to prioritise over everybody else in his life. He'd been living in the circumstances he was in. Now, sure, I'm sure that he was being selfish sometimes. We all are. But... Being single doesn't make you inherently selfish. The problem was his life circumstances had now changed. He had promised to put his now wife ahead of himself, to love her ahead of himself, and she had to keep saying to him, 
hang on, you've made this promise to me, you're not acting consistently with that, you're being selfish. So it was the change in his life circumstances that was actually the issue here that was showing up his selfishness, rather than just he'd made the transition from being the selfish single person to the selfless married person. So we have to be very careful not to kind of just equate single people as selfish. So many single Christians I know are incredibly generous with their time and their energies. They are incredibly servant-hearted. They are people who don't put themselves ahead of other people. We all do it at times. I do it at times. But the problem is sinfulness, not singleness. The problem is that we all have selfish hearts. The problem is that whatever our circumstances in life are, Satan uses that to tempt us into selfishness. It's not that singleness is a problem, it's sinfulness that is our problem. Our different life situations mean that we all face different sorts of temptations. But the Bible says that we all do a pretty thorough job of sinning whether or not we have a ring on our fingers. The single person is not more sin-prone than the married person. It's just that our different life situations provide different context for our sin struggles in different ways. All right, so far we've seen deficient, aberrant, deviant, immature and sin-prone. We're doing well. But unfortunately there's more to say because the single Christian life is seen to be one that is lacking in fulfilment. And that's in two different ways, relationally and then sexually. Let's talk about relationally first. In the non-Christian world around us, romantic love is seen to be the central motif for personal fulfilment and happiness. Now, I use an example of this all the time from pop culture, and I'm becoming more aware that it's very dated now. So I'm showing my age here. How many of you have seen or at least are familiar with the movie Jerry Maguire? Oh, gosh, this is terrible. There's like one hand. Oh, my goodness. All right, I'm going to have to do a little bit of a... I'll have to get the video clip of it next time. Tom Cruise, long time... I think he's about like 25 years old now. Tom Cruise, he's like... I think he's a sports agent or something, and his his life journey is kind of from being the, the brash, selfish kind of sports agent to the my life has had an epiphany and I'm now this wonderful, kind man who can see promotion and success alongside relationship, essentially. Anyway, he stars alongside Rosé Zellweger. She's this kind of quirky heroine who has a very, very cute kid who basically makes the whole movie. Anyway, the whole movie is kind of their romantic struggle. I think she's like his assistant or something. I can't remember. There's this scene at the end, and you may be familiar with this quote even if you're not familiar with the movie. There's this scene at the end where, you know, the big grand gesture happens. He realises what an idiot he's been. He doesn't want to let her go. And he comes to a house and he gives this impassioned plea. And her quote eventually is, you had me at hello. You know, that's all you needed to say. But in this impassioned plea, he says to her something like, we live in a selfish, selfish world, blah, blah, blah. And then he looks at her in this really intent way and he says, you complete me. Have you heard that? You complete, that's where it comes from, Tom Cruise. You (laughs) complete me. Google it, Google it, YouTube it. It's up on YouTube, right? There's this idea that the romantic relationship, we're, we're not whole. We need this other person to complete us. That's what the world says. 
I think we Christians like to think we don't buy into all this Tom, Crom, Tom Cruise rom-com nonsense, but the evidence actually tells a different story. By and large, contemporary Christianity has embraced the necessity of romantic love, not only as an imperative for a successful, long-lasting marriage, but as a fundamental aspect of personal fulfilment. So we have our very own version of the, the soulmate narrative. It's what I like to call the godmate narrative. And we get an example, for example, this quote here from my friend Debbie Macon. God made us male and female. We were neither designed nor intended to be completed only by God on this side of heaven. The full expression of maleness and femaleness is found in marriage. She even goes on to speak about how God has created us with a spouse-shaped void. And then says this is why spinsters so often come in pairs because they're clogging up each other's spouse-shaped void. Pretty offensive, right? We have books like these ones. God, where is my Boaz? <laughs> Go down to Kurong. You've got Kurong here, right, in Melbourne. Don't you all have equivalent? Go down. They'll be, they'll be on the shelf. Or your knight in shining armour. Romantic love expressed in marriage has become key to a Christian sense of personal fulfilment, actualization. It's like we Christians think that the relational goal of our lives is to find the one person the one person who is going to know me ideally and perfectly and superlatively. When that person knows me, i.e. when they marry me, then I'm truly known and I'm truly seen and I'm truly visible for who I am. Without that person, I don't have that visibility. I don't have that sense of being known. And I like to use an art metaphor to think about this. Have a look at this first picture. It's like the goal of our life, we think about the goal of life is to, to have a portrait of us painted by one person so that when we look at what they understand us to be, we go, yes, you, you've, you've depicted me, you've got me, this is who I am. But actually, I think life instead should be like this, a vibrant mixed collage full of all sorts of different pieces that contributed by different people in different ways some big, some small, some light, some dark, some vibrant, some muted, but all of which come together to make a beautiful and complex reflection of who we are in relationship. We think life is about finding the one person who's going to paint the portrait rather than the vast network of relationships that's going to make the collage of our lives. Buying into this notion puts marriage as the place where we are ultimately and perfectly known, where we find authentic relational fulfilment. And as we do that, what we're saying to singles is you can't be truly known. You can only be known in bits by a few people, in limited ways. We're deeply wounding single people who are left to feel like they will never truly be known or truly be appreciated or truly be loved for who they truly are deep down. But know what we're also doing is we are putting enormous pressure on a husband or a wife to be everything to their spouse, to know and love that person perfectly, when in fact we all know that that's impossible. We all know that our brokenness and our sinfulness means we cannot love each other and we cannot know each other perfectly. We're putting enormous pressure on marriages. We're setting marriages up to fail. 
We're not only telling single people they're a failure, we're setting married people up for failure. A single life is portrayed as a life lacking in relational, romantic fulfilment and actualization. But it's also portrayed as a life lacking in sexual fulfilment and actualization. I was going to give us another moment to discuss, but um, I'm going to skip ahead. So if there's a slide saying, yep, good work. I will come back to that quote in just a moment. Um, I thank God that we Christians, by and large, have tried to set ourselves apart from the sexual abandon and obsession that characterises the world around us. We have rightly affirmed that sexual expression has a God-given purpose for a God-given context, which is exclusive, lifelong, life-serving, life-giving marriage between a husband and a wife. But while we've sought to act and speak differently to the world in that sense, in another sense, we've bought right into the world's message about sex. We have absorbed the secular culture, or what I call the sexular, sexular culture, its commitment to sex as being central to personal identity. So the quote I was going to get you to quote, I think it will come up on the screen. Yep. Uh, no, go back to the discussion question. Yep. This was from an Aussie pastor in Melbourne, actually, um, and he wrote this in an Australian newspaper around the time of the whole same-sex marriage discussion, so a few years ago now. He said, there is nothing that goes to the heart of human identity as much as our sexuality. What do you, you, at first glance, you might think, okay, yeah, but just, just have a think about that for a moment. Is sexuality more at the heart of what it is to be human than anything else? What about having been created in God's image? Having been created for relationship with him, for relationship with each other, for relationship with parents and siblings and friends and children and neighbours and colleagues, to be workers and stewards in this earth. Sexuality is vitally important. I firmly believe that. And I'm spending a lot of my time now kind of trying to think through how is it important and why is it important. But is it the most important thing about being human? Is it the heart of human identity? So I'm concerned that we Christians have too readily bought into this worldview that puts sexuality at the core of who I am and then sees our freedom to express and discover our sexuality as being a necessary outworking of who I am, as part of our self-realisation of who we were created to be. I think we see this most clearly in the idea that lust is the one temptation with which the Christian is unable to resist, even with the help of the Holy Spirit. So if we go forward to that quote from John MacArthur again, um, in that same talk, he says, singleness, not sinfulness, singleness, leads to sexual sin at a rampant level because you've got all these people with their pent-up desires which can't be normally met and they're about to explode. Where if you're single, you're a walking, talking, ticking time bomb of lust because that's the world we live in. It's said that sex is so essential to who I am as a human person. You know, the, the temptation to resist having sex is just inevitable. I'm going to give into it eventually. I'm just going to explode with lust all over you all. This is kind of the world we live in. But actually, this is not just the result of 20th, 21st century Western culture. You actually know where this started? 
It started with the Reformation. Well, you can ask me a question about this later if you want. We don't have time to go into it now. But actually, the Reformation was foundational in leading to this kind of idea. See, it came up with these, for these quotes from Martin Luther and John Calvin. Luther said, without marriage or without a special gifting to remain celibate, um, which he says uh, God gives to less than one in a thousand people, this gift. So without marriage or without a special gifting to remain celibate, it is simply impossible for you to remain righteous. You will be bound to commit heinous sexual sin without end. John Calvin says the companionship of marriage has been ordained as a necessary remedy to keep us from plunging into unbridled lust. This all started around the time of the Reformation because they were responding to uh, celibacy in the Catholic Church. They were responding to all the sexual morality that was happening within celibacy in the Catholic Church. And what we see is the Reformers are actually this foundation to say, actually, no, sex is not just good, and that's really good that they said that, but sex is like this natural necessity to human life. And so you need some special gift of the Holy Spirit to stop you from having sex if you're unmarried. That's where it came from. Sex becomes so essential to being human that we're inevitably destined to explode with lust unless we get married and have the proper, out, proper outlet for our lust. I mean, what does that say about marriage, that marriage is an outlet for lust? We don't believe that, but we kind of do. But what about all those other parts of Scripture that talk about us bearing the spiritual fruit of self-control? They talk about God having sent his own spirit to dwell within us as the helper, to make us more and more like Jesus. When it comes to anger or gluttony or selfishness, then we've got the Spirit helping us to develop, you know, to develop the fruit of the Spirit that counters those things. But lust? Oh, no, no, no. We need something more than the Spirit. We need some special gift to help us be self-controlled when it comes to our sexual temptations. Where does the Bible say that? But we kind of think that way, don't we? For some reason, sex is this different category in our thinking. Sexual sin is a different category than every other area of sinfulness that we struggle with. We've bought into this idea that at the very core of our identity, the very heart of who we are, is our sexuality. And then in order to express who God designed us to be, we need to realise our God-given identity by engaging in sexual activity. We think of celibacy, a life without sex, as kind of a suppression of our sexuality. When in fact, living without sex as a single person is an expression of our sexuality. It's a godly expression of the sexual nature that God has given me in this way, rather in that way. And so as a result of our thinking, singles are very frequently portrayed as either doomed to suppress this key part of who they are, or doomed to give in to the inevitable sin of sexual immorality over and over and over again. Either way, it leaves them feeling sexually abnormative and unable to flourish as a human being. It's all been pretty depressing. The single Christian identity is very often characterised as deficient, abnormal, deviant, immature, sin-prone, running out of fingers, romantically unfulfilled and sexually unfulfilled. 
So I hope you can see why after I've kind of just dumped this all on you, why it's so important for us to come to grips with where we're at before we kind of move forward to where we want to be. We have to understand, we have to understand the diagnosis before we can look to the treatment. So what is the take-home lesson here? Well, we're going to keep talking about this for the rest of the day and actually pass the rest of the day. I've left you with lots of questions. I'm sure you'll ask some of them in the time we have, but actually I've been intentionally provocative because I want you to keep thinking about these things. I want you to keep asking them and talking about them with each other. But what is, what is the take-home? I think the take-home lesson that I want to encourage you guys to think about is what is our thinking about singleness and, in fact, marriage? What is our thinking about singleness and marriage ultimately being shaped by? Who is discipling us in our thinking about singleness and marriage? Is it the world or is it God? And how do we tell the difference? Um, there's, a, there's an author in America who we've had, uh, we've interviewed on um, Single Minded. We've had a, a webinar with him. I have to say his name in an American accent because it's just made for an American accent. His name is Cutter Calloway. And he's written a book called Breaking the Marriage Idol, Reconstructing Our Cultural and Spiritual Norms. It's a really good book. All books have things you need to read discerningly, but this is a good book. In it, he says this. It's got a great cover as well. He says, We have not only adopted a distorted and distorting vision of marriage, singleness and sexuality from our cultural environs, but we now organise our entire common life as Christians together as if this vision was normative for everyone within the Christian community. As a result, we are no longer aware of all that is hidden from our view. We are wearing blinders, but we've mistaken them as spectacles. I think that is such an insightful quote. We, we don't understand what's hidden from our view. It's only by having these discussions, by actually diving under the surface by reading between the lines that we actually bring up to the surface what has been hidden from our view, what we have been discipled to think by the world around us. So what's the ultimate treatment? It's taking our blinders off and putting on the spectacles of Scripture. It's going back to God's Word. Not just 1 Corinthians 7, which is what we're going to do now, but all of God's Word, and not just on singleness, but on marriage, on sexuality, on relationships, on friendship, on community, on all of these things, on the sanctification of the Spirit, on what it means for us to be people who are becoming more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It's actually thinking, hang on, how do these things guide my, shape my thinking on all those other things?